You can grab your Bible this morning and turn with me to Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 2, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. If you hit Ezekiel, you've gone too far, go back a little bit. It's that little lament in the middle of all the major prophets. This morning, we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study of the book of Lamentations in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Now, last week, we were in Lamentations chapter 2, and we looked at verses 1 through 10. And in this passage, we saw that God will collectively judge a society for their collective sins. I encourage you, if you got weren't here, you got questions about that, go online, you can listen to the whole message. But the point is that when a society, a nation, a culture rejects God's truth, God will judge that nation, society, or culture. And really, He does so in large part because of His mercy. It's a mercy that God prevents a nation from becoming so steeped in depravity and sin. It's a mercy that God puts a stop for that to that before it gets even worse. That's what God did in the flood. It's what God did at the Tower of Babel. But it's also a mercy to us as individual sinners that, that God would do this to a culture because it's a reminder to individual sinners like us that This is the eternal fate of all who reject Him. When God pours out just a small inkling, a small taste of His judgment, it is a warning, a precursor of an eternal judgment to come. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if if sinners who do not repent and trust in Jesus, they're, they're going to face this judgment. Can you imagine if that was the end for all sinners, but God told no one and gave no indication of that? But God is merciful in revealing these things and, and, and pouring out meted judgment in this world so that we have the opportunity to repent and believe. Even as God pours out judgment on a culture, on a nation, the individuals of that nation have the opportunity to repent and be saved. And so even in this, we see the kindness of the Lord But when you start to think about this concept of God handing a nation, a culture over in judgment, God pouring out His his wrath on a society, He he did that to Israel through the destruction of Jerusalem, but He does that in various ways to other cultures, and He's done so throughout history. There are other passages in the prophets that says sometimes that as a judgment to a nation, the Lord will confuse its leaders. (laughs) Does that sound familiar? There's a place in the Scripture that says sometimes in judgment, God will hand a people over to their sins so they can just chase after it and the destruction that it leads to. Does that sound familiar? There are all kinds of ways that God can do uh, pour out His judgment, and, and often it's a pulling back of His common grace and even a pulling back of accessibility to the special grace that we find in the Word and through the Gospel. These are realities that we find front and center in the book of Lamentations. And these realities of God's judgment on a people, it, they leave us with a lot of questions about how we should faithfully respond to God's displeasure on a society, doesn't it? 
I mean, it's easy for us to look around and say, I am certain that God is displeased with what I see going on. And, and, and in some cases, not always, but in some cases, it's even easy to look and say, look, there is a sign of God's judgment right there. But what becomes difficult is, how do we faithfully respond to that? There, are lot, there have been a lot of unsuccessful efforts to try to respond to, to cultural decay in our own society. We've seen culture wars. We've seen a moral ma- mandate, moral majority. We've seen some who totally separate from all things. We've seen some who seek political power to bring about change through political power. All of those strategies have been employed throughout the years to try to stave off God's judgment and prevent cultural rot in our own country. And as we look back, we just have to admit, none of them have worked. Ultimately, none of these responses, no matter how well-meaning they might have been, have done much to curb our societal spiral downward. And the principle behind all this, by the way, is pretty simple. Every insufficient response to our own cultural sins and cultural spiral, every insufficient response has been rooted in trying to solve a spiritual problem with an unspiritual solution. In other words, you're, you're facing a spiritual problem, rebellion to God right down the barrel, and, and, and you're trying to deal with that through, through physical, natural, unspiritual human methodologies. Ultimately, that's not going to work. If the problem is rooted in the rejection of God's truth, if it's spiritual rebellion that's at the core of the problem, then a spiritual solution is going to be necessary. And thankfully, Lamentations chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, provides us with some helpful directives for how we should respond in a spiritual way to a society that is incurring God's judgment. Now, We're going to dig into these verses today. And as we do, I want you to notice the voice has changed. The voice has changed. It's it's no longer Israel speaking and mourning. But now, in verse 11, it is the prophet speaking. Remember, we, we early in our study, we established that in all likelihood, this book was written by the prophet Jeremiah. And the prophet had been faithfully warning for decades about this very day and the coming judgment of God. He had been warning, and he had been warning, and he had been warning, and the people just rejected him. And now that the day he's been warning of has come, this is how he responds to it. And Jeremiah's response provides us with essentially a template for how the faithful should respond when God judges a nation. Now, is this going to answer every question you've got? No, it is not. It may very well raise more questions than it does provide answers. But here we see some key principles that we've got to think through. And we're going to see the key principles here. And then we're going to have to figure out how to take those principles and put them into specific action in our own situation. But this does provide us with a template. Specifically, these verses call us to three 
faithful responses to God's wrath in a society. Three faithful responses to God's wrath in a society. And by the way, even in saying that, three faithful responses, I have very carefully chosen my words. I've specifically chosen the word faithful responses because that's our goal. That's our responsibility. Our main goal is not victory. I can't bring about victory. Can't do it. My main goal is not results. You know why? I can't produce results. You say, well, what can we do? We can pursue faithfulness to the Lord. Faithfulness to the uh, Lord. Oftentimes, in the midst of pursuing faithfulness, somebody might come along and say, well, that's not going to work. It might not, I don't know, but I know this is what the Lord's called me to do and I've got to be faithful to what He's called me to do and then trust the results to Him. I'm not expecting that we're going to study Lamentations 2, 11-22. We're going to get a strategy for, for how to deal with all that's going on in our culture and we're going to go out and within the next two weeks, everything will be different. <laughs> if you're expecting that, you expect way too much out of this sermon. <laughs> No, 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 what this is, this is a passage that's shepherding us towards faithfulness in the midst of a culture that is burning all around us. We want to be faithful in the midst of cultural upheaval and judgment and God's displeasure. And these verses show us, at least in skeleton form, what that looks like. And we find the first faithful response In verses 11 and 12. Here we find the prophet weeping. Weeping. That's the first response. Weeping. Look at verses 11 and 12. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Here we see Jeremiah's initial response to this judgment. And notice Jeremiah's response. It was not cold and vindictive. It was sorrowful. I mean, he is known as the weeping prophet. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 13, this is earlier in Jeremiah's ministry where where he's calling the people to repentance and he's warning them, look, Judgment is coming. If you'll repent now, it will be easier. If you rebel now, it will be worse. That was his whole ministry. And he says in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 17, But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. You see, in all this, Jeremiah reminds us that it is appropriate for us to mourn and weep when God punishes the wicked. You see, Jeremiah's response in Lamentations chapter 2, it reflects the heart of God who finds no pleasure in punishing the wicked, the Scriptures say. And 
Just look in verse 11 at the vivid language that Jeremiah uses to describe his sorrow. He says, my eyes are spent with weeping. The, the, the original there, it, it indicates his eyes were emptied out like a, the floodgates being opened. He says, my stomach churns. Literally, my bowels ferment. He says, my bile is poured out to the ground. Literally, my liver is thrown out into the dust. What, what is all this communicating? Well, the point in all this language is that at the sight of God's wrath, Jeremiah's distress was both genuine and emotional. He had been sent to minister to these people, and now they were suffering the consequences of their sin. And their culpability in the matter didn't change the fact that it saddened his heart. I mean, notice what's going on here. Why does he respond this way? Well, because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Jerusalem is destroyed. Because infants and babies, that is the weaned and unweaned children, they faint in the streets. Why? There's no food. They're crying to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man. What does that mean? A wounded man here is talking about somebody who's wounded in battle. In other words, the babies in the streets were just as affected by this battle as the soldiers on the front line. That's how bad it was. There's no food. And as these children are crying out for food, what is it that their mothers can do for them? Nothing. Except hold them in their laps. It says, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. There's no food to give them. This was all the consequence of the people's sin. In fact, this is a stunning reminder, not only of the consequences of sin, but it's also a graphic reminder that we as God's people should pity those who are caught up in those consequences. Notice the prophet doesn't say, I told you so. Did he tell him so? Yep, he warned him of exactly that thing. Notice the prophet never said, you got what you deserved. Did they deserve it? Yeah, they did. We saw it earlier. They said it's because of our sin that we're experiencing this. But notice the prophet's not throwing that in their face. He's suffering, or he's weeping for the suffering that they had to endure. And when we look at the prophet's response, it reminds us that we must never become so desensitized to the pain of sin in other people's lives that we don't care anymore. There's a place to weep with those who weep even when it is their fault and even when they reject our ministry. I mean, think of what, what Jeremiah did. He gave his whole life. He was, he was persecuted. He was oppressed. He was mocked. He was ostracized. And then everything that he said came about. And in that moment, man, if I was there, my flesh would be going batty just wanting to say, I knew it. I knew this is what would happen. I told you so. So the temptation is for us to take our ministries so personally that, that we feel betrayed when people reject our ministries. I tried to reach out to that person and they just wouldn't have anything to it. I can't believe this. They realize what I'm trying to do for them. But the fact of the matter is that 
When people reject our ministries of truth, they're rejecting the truth of God to their own peril. And that is pitiable, not personal. We must develop a compassion even for those who oppose the truth, a compassion that is rooted in a pity for them and an understanding of how awful the consequences of sin are. You see, one of the things I worry about from a pastoral perspective, I worry that as we believers look around and see all the cultural lunacy going on, it's lunacy. I worry that as we see these things, we will be tempted to get angry and respond in anger rather than in compassion for people who are lost and dying and going to hell. See, when God brings judgment on a society, it is appropriate for the faithful to weep over the consequences of sin. In fact, as awful as this scene is, with young children starving to death on their mother's laps in the city streets, as awful as this scene is, it pales into comparison with hell and the millions who are headed towards that final judgment. It's so easy for us to look around or or scroll through our Facebook page and see all the dumb things people say that's only going to make things worse and get angry and respond in anger and mockery. But at some point, we have to respond in pity and compassion and weep for what we see going on. The church can only function faithfully in a dying culture when it has compassion for lost souls. So what's a faithful response look like to a society that is under God's judgment and in a downward spiral? Well, one faithful response is weeping. But as we turn our attention to verses 13 through 19, we find a second faithful response. Here we find the prophet warning. Warning. Verse 13. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His Word which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. 
There's a lot going on in these verses, but what we find here is the prophet warning the people. You see, a faithful response to God's judgment on a society cannot end with empathy. It is appropriate for us to weep, but we must not only weep, we must also warn. It's not enough to just show compassion to those suffering the consequences of sin. We must warn of the spiritual dangers. We must warn of what will happen if they don't repent. And we must warn them with the truth of God of how to deal with the situation. When it comes to our cultural involvement, by the way, this is the church's primary role. We don't build cultures. We don't build nations. However, we are a salt and a light within cultures and nations, right? What does that mean? It means it's our job to speak truth into a culture even when that culture has rejected the truth. And by the way, we have to speak truth into what's going on today even when that's not expedient to do so. Remember, we are not called to take political sides in a culture war. We have been called to faithfully represent God's truth to the world around us. So what do we do? We speak truth. See, God uses the redeemed within any society as a common grace to function almost like a societal conscience. And a conscience that is not rooted in biblical truth and a conscience that no longer warns of sin is defiled and useless. So what's our job? To root our message in biblical truth and to warn of sin. We must use the truth of God's Word to warn our culture. And that is essentially what we find the prophet doing in these verses. In fact, notice how the prophet begins by, by warning the people of false hope in the midst of their judgment. Verse 13, he's warning them of, of false hope in human figures. He says, what can I say for you to what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion. The point is, they were going through kind of wrath that no society had ever experienced. Their fall was further than any other nation because God had exalted them so highly. And what's our tendency when we get in the midst of a, a bad situation? What do we want to do? We want to find somebody else who's been through it and said, ah, oh, they made it through. If they can make it through, I can make it through. It'll be okay. Right? We want to root our hope in, well, if they made it, this other human made it through, then I can make it through. Jeremiah said, can't do that now. Nobody else to compare this with. Some president. Your ruin is vast as the sea. You as an individual human being, you just try to wrap your arms and your hands around the sea. <laughs> you can't. It's immense. It's immeasurable. And notice the point here. He ends by saying, who can heal you? And the answer is, no human figure. No one can fix what God breaks, and it is foolish to trust men to save us from divine punishment. That's what he's warning of here. And he goes on, not only to warn them about trusting in human figures, but also to warn them about trusting human wisdom, which in this case, took the form of false prophecy. So the message of Israel's prophets, they rejected the true prophets of God. They gathered prophets for themselves. And here's what Jeremiah says. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. 
Uh, the word false means untrue. And the Hebrew word here translated deceptive, sometimes it can be used to refer to a food that is tasteless. This would be like saying uh, uh, your, your prophecy was like a rice cake. <laughs> Tastes like nothing. <laughs> there, there's nothing to it. It's worthless. Notice it says, here's why it's worthless. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. Look, if these prophets of yours had, had called you out on your sin and called you to repentance, then maybe you would have repented and maybe it would have dealt with the situation. But instead of calling you to repentance, they gave you false assurance with no accountability, which means there was no way to avoid punishment for sin. They didn't help them to see the hidden sins. Their oracles were just false and misleading. By the way, a message that does not address sin, it cuts you off from grace because the only way to receive grace is by dealing with sin. So the prophets never, never address sin. And you say, well, why did, why, why did the people accept those prophets why did they listen to them? Why didn't they listen to Jeremiah? Well, because the prophets were telling them what they wanted to hear. That's why. And the natural tendency of the human heart is to suppress hard truths and accept human wisdom as a way of not dealing with sin. Ooh, man, that's tough from God's Word. If I really dig into that, I'm going to have to really dig into some of the sin in my own heart. You know what? I'd rather just accept this human wisdom over here because that's superficial and it excuses my sin anyway, so I'm going to accept that. Look, no human wisdom or solution can solve the problems associated with God's wrath on a society and the problem of sin. Won't happen. We can't trust human wisdom. We have to turn to God's wisdom from His Word. Furthermore, you can't trust human power. Verse 15 says, All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads. This was Israel. They were supposed to be a blessing to all nations is what the Abrahamic covenant said. All the nations were supposed to come to them and worship with them. Now all the nations are coming and mocking them. Not only mocking them, but just deriding them. And as they pass by, they say, is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty? Is this really the joy of all the earth? They're kind of mocking one of the Psalms there. Psalm 48 talks about Israel and Jerusalem as the joy of all the earth. And the Gentiles walk by and they don't say, wow, what a blessing this place is to the whole world. They walk by and say, you kidding me? This? It's been leveled. And notice what's going on here. When Jeremiah said, God's going to destroy the city, they said, never. Don't you know what Jerusalem is? It's the joy of all the earth. We have the temple. We can basically do whatever we want, and God will never destroy this. We're just going to hide behind the city and hide behind the temple. What do they trust in? They trust in their human walls. They trust in the house that they built. They trusted in all their power and prestige. And where did that get them? Nowhere. The prominence and power Jerusalem had trusted in had now been totally stripped away because of their sins. And this is a reminder, there is no prominence, there is no power, there is no political solution that can ever deliver a nation from God's judgment. And by the way, just as kind of an aside, 
Isn't it interesting in verse 15 that says they clap their hands at you, they hiss and wag their heads? That's kind of a weird phrase, isn't it? Wag their heads. Does that sound familiar to you at all? It should. Remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross? What happened? Nobody said, wow, the suffering servant dying for sinners. Hallelujah. What did they do? They walked by. They derided Him. They mocked Him. They hissed and wagged their heads. That phrase, wag their heads, is right there. Mark 15. In other words, Jesus endured the very same scorn on the cross. He endured the scorn and mockery that sinners actually deserved, except He didn't deserve it, did He? Christ bore the shame of sin and He bore the consequences of judgment and exile from God. And He did so on behalf of sinners just like us who deserved this punishment. So even as we see these words here wagging their heads, we're reminded the only true hope that we have in the face of God's judgment is found in the person of Christ Jesus. He lived perfectly. He died as a perfect sacrifice. He's been raised from the dead and seated on high so that by believing in Christ Jesus, we can be saved from our sins. Human figures, human wisdom, human power, they're false hopes. Christ is our only true hope. And it's our job to take this message out to the world around us. At the same time, as we warn about false hopes, we have to warn with the truth about God's wrath, don't we? Notice how the prophet does this. In verse 16, it says, All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. In all likelihood, this is talking about the other Gentile nations that were around Israel. And they hated Israel when Israel was prominent. Now the Babylonians come in and knock everything down. And all these other smaller Gentile nations jump on the bandwagon and join in the fun, so to speak. The Ammonites, the Edomites, the Moabites, etc. They piled on. They'd been waiting and longing for this day when they could defeat Israel. Now it's arrived. They swallow her up. Notice though how the prophet interprets this. Did this happen because finally they gained enough power for themselves that they overcame God's people? Notice what it says. The Lord has done what He purposed. Why were these things happening? They were happening because of the wrath of God, the punishment of God. Jerusalem fell because it was God's will, and God always accomplishes exactly what He purposes. It says that He has carried out His Word. By the way, this is not something that God did capriciously or willy-nilly. God had been warning the people of this for hundreds of years. When He initially made the covenant with them, He gathered them together and warned them of this very thing. Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. What are the people doing? Making a golden calf. Immediately they turned away from it. Did God punish them immediately? No. 
Not fully in this capacity. What did He do? He mercifully and patiently warned them and warned them, proving Himself to be a patient God, slow to wrath. But, as He revealed Himself to be, He is not a God who will overlook iniquity and sin. So what's He doing when the the city of Jerusalem is destroyed? What's He doing when He pours out wrath? He's doing exactly what He said He would do and warned of. says he's carrying out his word which he commanded long ago he's thrown down without pity that's his wrath his judgment has made the enemies rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes all of this happened because of god's judgment because of god's wrath that's what the prophet's saying to them the prophet's not looking around saying man this is so bad i don't know what's going on the prophet's saying here's a reality There's no hope over here because what's going on is we're under God's wrath. Which leads in verses 18-19 to the prophet warning further the people about their responsibility. You can't find hope in human devices. We're under God's wrath. So, So what truth does the prophet need to speak into these people? How does he need to warn them? Well, he needs to warn them that their only hope is to repent and turn to the Lord. See, in addition to warning about false hosts and God's wrath, we have a responsibility to warn people about their responsibility to repent and believe. Now, we're going to look at this verse more in depth the next time we're in the book of Lamentations. And we're going to see what it teaches us about the nature of repentance. But for now, as we look at verses 18 and 19, just note, repentance is what they needed to do. Notice, he says at the end of verse 18, give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. He's not comforting them with false hope, saying, don't worry about it, this too shall pass. He's saying, no, you don't stop until you've fully repented of the sins that led to this. Again, in verse 19, lift your hands to Him. Turn to the Lord. Your children are starving in the streets because of God's wrath. You know what you need to do? You need to repent and turn back to the Lord and turn to Him for grace. That's how the prophet's warning the people. And that too is how we must warn the people around us as well. The church can only function faithfully in a decadent, sinful culture when it has the courage to warn of the dangers of sin and speak to the need for repentance. In other words, we've got to be a reliable conscience to the culture by speaking truth into the culture. We've got to do a better job of not just arguing political points, but bringing biblical truth to bear in situations. You want to argue about political points? That's fun. You can listen. You can have a three-hour drive time radio show and do that. You can turn on the news in the evening and do that. And I'm not saying there's not a place for policy discussions. But at the end of the day, we as God's people have a responsibility not just to advocate for the policies we think are best, we have a responsibility to bring God's truth to bear in those situations. So from God's perspective, what's wrong with this? Well, tell me from a political perspective what's wrong with this. That's easy. An unbeliever can tell me that. You tell me from God's perspective what's wrong with this. And then we can move forward. That's what we have to do. As we're weeping 
we must also warn and warn with the truth. Speak truth into the culture. Which leads us to a third faithful response that we see in this passage. When we turn our attention to verses 20 through 22, we find the prophet doing one more thing. Here we find the prophet essentially waiting. He's waiting. We've seen him weeping. We've seen him warning. And now, essentially, he's waiting. Notice what verses 20 through 22 say. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Now, besides lovingly speaking the truth into our culture, which is really weeping and warning, what is that? Speaking the truth in love. Besides lovingly speaking the truth to our culture, the only thing that we can do besides that is wait on the Lord to act. You see, the world looks to social action and political action to solve everything. I mean, not to get myself into trouble, but apparently nowadays we think that the government can even control hurricanes. <laughs> Who controls that? The Lord does. The Lord does. Only God can change these things. Which means we must be faithful to weep. We must be faithful to warn. But by our weeping and warning, we cannot bring about change on our timeline according to our standards. We can't. So what do we do? We wait on the Lord. We wait on the Lord. What does that mean? Waiting on the Lord means we're trusting in God's character. Waiting on the Lord means that we are trusting in His timing. And waiting on the Lord means that we are trusting in the means that He has promised to use. Okay, Lord, I trust who You are. I trust that You're going to work when You deem it best to work. And I trust that You're going to use the means that You've promised to use in the Scripture. I'm not going to go outside of that. I'm not going to doubt who you are, I'm not going to doubt when you work, and I'm not going to doubt the methods that you use. I'm going to submit my life to those things, and I'm going to wait on you to see the results. And that's essentially what the prophet is calling on the people to do. You just need to wait on the Lord. You call out, you pray to the Lord, and you wait on the Lord to act. That's your only hope. It's a little disappointing, isn't it? You want the prophet to say, all right, first you weep, then you warn, and then you do this, and it'll all go away. But he gets to this end of the chapter, and there's a crescendo, and he's calling on them to repent, and, and, it, and it seems like they're repentant, and you almost expect, okay, now everything's going to be better, and then he just says, and, and then you just pray and weep and pray and weep. What can you do except say, look, O Lord, and see? Look, O Lord, and see. And by cataloging the afflictions that Israel endured here, this isn't complaining. This is calling out for mercy in these areas. Okay, Lord, you do this, you do this, you do this. I need help in this areas. I mean, this is a plea for God to re relent. And whenever we ask the Lord to relent, we also have to come with the faith to wait on His timing to do so. 
In our own situation, we have to plead for God's grace for our society and in our life, and then we have to trust His timing to do that. I mean, the Lord's wrath had been relentless up to this point. Verse 21, In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old, my young women, my young men. In other words, every age bracket, every demographic was affected by this. You've killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. Okay, Lord, moving forward, this is what you've done. Moving forward, we have to have your pity back. We have to have your mercy. The Lord's going to relent against even our own society. What do we need? We need His mercy, not our merit. Verse 21, you summoned it as, a, as if to a festival day, as if a feast, except everybody's coming is coming to hurt us, not worship with us. My terrors on every side, on the day of the anger of the Lord. Previously, by the way, the people wouldn't accept that. Ahead of time, the prophet warned them, this is what will happen. The people said, no, it won't. Now they're saying, yes, it did. So what do you do when you get to that place? I mean, if they had repented earlier, their punishment would have been less severe. But now, what is it? Well, it's actually the same thing. If they had submitted to God's punishment and faithfully come back to Him, it would have been less severe. So what do they need to do now? Submit to the Lord in it and wait on Him. No one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. In other words, Lord, you stripped away every source of hope I possibly could have had, and now the only thing I have to do is to look to you in hope and cry out to you for help. That's it. People were finally starting to submit to the Lord's verdict and wait on His deliverance, which is what has to happen. The only thing Israel could do was wait, which is the only thing that any of us can do. But understand that waiting does not mean not doing anything. A significant part of waiting on the Lord is being faithful where He's called us to be faithful. Where He gives us opportunities to do so. Look, even in our own country, we have lots of short-term means that God has put at our disposal to try to uh, slow down sin in our society. We can vote. We can get involved in civic involvement. We can get involved in politics to some degree. But what we must keep in mind is that these temporary means are at best speed bumps to restrict the momentum of depravity in our culture. I'm not saying you pull out all those things. I'm just saying at best, at best that's a seatbelt, but it's not going to prevent the crash. So what do we do? We seek faithfulness to the Lord and ultimately recognize that we are prayerfully waiting on God as our only hope for true spiritual change. That's what we do. We weep. When people have to live with the consequences of sin in this life, it's awful. And then when people die and have to face the eternal consequences of sin in hell, it's even worse. We weep. We mourn. That's what's going on. We warn. We've got the truth. So we speak these truths into the culture, even when the culture doesn't want to hear it, and they won't want to hear it because we're speaking against what they're doing. Ah, that'll just come across unloving as unloving. Well, what's unloving? To just let them go headlong in a judgment or to speak the truth to them? 
So what do we do? We warn. We speak the truth. And once we've wept and warned, we wait. We trust the Lord's character. He's good. Don't you? You, tu- you, you sit down in the evening, you got a little spare time, and you turn on the cable news. That's fine. That's fine. I find myself there. But what I want you to see is when that segment comes on that is about to make steam just blow right out your ears, okay? Make you so angry. You just stop and you remind yourself, God's good. God's good. I got to trust his character. And then I got to trust his timing. Is he going to work all these things out and deal with every last one of them? You better believe it. But he's going to do so in his timing. So what do we do? We trust his timing. And then we trust the means that he has put at our disposal to make a difference. Yeah, we got some... We got some short-term means like voting and getting involved and stuff like that. That's fine. But don't ever get confused. The primary means are through the truth, through the church, through evangelism, through ministry. Now, there's certainly more we could say about what it looks like to remain faithful in the midst of God's judgment on a society. Absolutely. I'm positive you've got more questions than answers. But this passage provides us with a paradigm for how the church should respond when God hands a society over to sin. And as we see what's going on around us in this world, friend, it is appropriate for us as God's people to weep, to warn, and to wait on the Lord. We pray with me? Lord, we thank You so much for these principles, this template from the prophet Jeremiah. Lord, we recognize that there are still many, many questions on the specifics that aren't all raised, but I pray that as we seek to work out the specifics in our life, you would help us to be faithful to the principles we do see in Scripture, to be guided by a compassion for the lost and to the sinners around us, to be guided by your truth, to speak the truth into the world around us, and then also to be guided by a confident trust in you. That allows us to confidently wait on you to work these things out according to your character, according to your timing, and according to the instruments that you've chosen to use. Lord, we thank you for this instruction that you've given to us. And we confess, this is a really hard issue for us. It is really hard for us to see what's going on around us in the world. Not just now, but in all ages for the church. It's hard for us to see what's going on around us in the world and not know what to do. Uh, To become frustrated and confused. Uh, So we pray that you would instruct us through this passage and help us to be faithful to you. We know that's our highest calling, to bring you glory by being faithful to what you've called us to do. And so we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.